It is really a pleasure to be here. I mean, a lot of you probably don't know who Denny or I are. About 20 years ago, actually about 20 and a half years ago exactly, Dave and Gina Stavros called us up and asked us if we want to be missionaries to Peru. And we said no, but we'd be happy to support them. But that we pray about it. And we prayed about it. And um, our life took a big turn from what we were planning. I was in the middle of graduate school, finishing up my doctoral thesis, which had taken uh, over a decade. And uh, suddenly, instead of being a professor at the university, we're heading off to Peru to be church planters. And I have to tell you, I think I've told you this before, but I have to tell you again, that after giving my life to the Lord, after deciding to marry Denise, the third best decision of my life and Denny's life was our decision to go to Peru. And so we're incredibly grateful to Wyzetta for the preparation they gave us before we went. And we're incredibly grateful for your support that's made it possible. And what I'm going to try to do this morning is do a little bit of a mission report. And for those of you who are worried that I might be a very long-winded missionary, I am in Latin America, but I've been praying that I'd be brief this morning. Danny and I were here in Wyzetta during the time of John Vauder. And when John Vauder would ask you to give a mission moment, he would stand right beside you. And remember, there was a bigger pulpit back then, for those of you who are old enough to remember it. And he would put his hand on your back. And he'd tell you you had two and a half minutes, or three minutes, whatever he told you. And about a minute before your time was up, you began to feel pressure on, his, on your back. <laughs> and as it got 30 seconds, the pressure was quite strong. And about at zero, you were pressed up against the pulpit. <laughs> now, I always had the good sense to stop at the time that John Vauder told us to stop. And when the pressure got strong, I knew that was time to end. A good friend of ours who works in Peru as well, Tim McIntosh, was spoken here. He once shared a missionary moment, and he went about two minutes over. He said it was very difficult to breathe the last minute. <laughs> so, although I don't have a hand pressing me in the back, I'll try to remember that hand, and I'll try to be brief. But let's pray. Dearest Heavenly Father, thank you so very, very much for the privilege that we have of calling you our Father, of being your children. I thank you as well for the privilege, Lord, of having been a member of this church and for all that you taught Denny and me and our children. I thank you for the privilege of being a missionary sent out by this church and for what that has meant in terms of prayer support and financial support and friendship. And I pray this morning, Lord, that I would be faithful to you, that what I share would come from you, that I would speak, Lord, not of my own wisdom, but of words that come from you, so that this time would be well spent. I ask this in your son's name. Amen. Okay. For those of you who remember, this is what our family looks like now. Peter's the youngest one, and he's older now than our oldest son was when we left for Peru. Our two oldest sons, Seth and Daniel, they're in medical school now. Um, Danny wants to be a missionary to a Muslim country. Seth kind of just wants to be a missionary someplace. Um, John just started college. He's a freshman. Uh, he's into computing and, and studying Japanese. And then Peter is still with us. He's someplace running around the church here. He's just starting eighth grade in Peru. We're on our summer vacation right now. And 
What I'd like to do is, first of all, tell you a little bit about what's going on in the Latin American missions in Peru. Um, Denny and I are serving with the EFCA in Latin America. Um, in uh, The country that we're serving in is Lima, Peru. We work there with the Asociación de Iglesias Evangélicas Libres de Peru, which is really just the Evangelical Free Church Association of Peruvian Pastors. Right now, the association consists of uh, five churches. One of those is a church that didn't exist two years ago. It's been recently planted. So there are now five churches. There are two church plants. Um, all of them are in Lima, Peru. That's the capital city. Uh, two years ago, I shared with you a vision that we had of starting a, um, a church planting project up in a mountain village called Chakya, which very much lives the way that the Peruvians did three, four hundred years ago. Um, in a lot of ways, God opened the door. It was a really exciting experience. I don't have time to tell you all about it right now. But one of the sad things is, is that although it was within Peru, I think it proved to be too much of a cross-cultural challenge for the, uh, the Peruvian pastors. And so they felt that it wasn't the time yet to continue on. And so they selected a project that's closer to Lima, that's up in the mountains still, but culturally is much more like the rest of the more Hispanic uh, Peruvians. So there are several projects that the National Free Church is involved in. Um, let me give you an update on the Lavinia now. Lavinia is the sister church that was planted uh, or started in 1988. And um, one of the things that's really been exciting, we're still a small church. On a good Sunday morning, we hit about 100 people. If you ask people what church they belong to, there might be about 120, 130 people that say they're members. But in Latin America, if you attend uh, um, church two Sundays a month, you're pretty fanatical. So on any given Sunday morning, we have a different mix of people. But one of the exciting things to look at, this picture, by the way, is a picture of our church building, uh, sorry, and the couple up in the corner, that's our pastor. We have a, a full-time pastor, that's his wife, that's Cesar Ferreira and Gabi, and the motley crew below is um, a collection of people on Sunday morning. Um, one of the things that's been exciting is that despite the fact that we're a small church, um, and despite the fact that often it's very hard to raise up leadership in Latin America, I think we've been very successful, by God's grace, really, because I can't really identify a clear plan that we've had at developing leaders. And I just want to give you an example of what God has done in terms of leadership development. Overseas, not by any design of ours, we actually, in fact, have two people who are pastors now who come out of Lavinia. Uh, those two little red dots show they are both in California. One has been pastoring a congregation called Lavinia, and the other one is Cesar Hervasi. If you remember the musical group that came through here, I don't know how many years ago, La Semilla, Cesar Hervasi was the lead musician in that group. And prior to being a member of Lavinia, he had found it very difficult to be a member of any church. Um, not because he wasn't a committed Christian, but he was an artist, very much a free spirit. And even when he was a member of a church, he thought, I will never serve in a choir. I will never lead a praise group. And at Lavinia, he was co-leader of our, of, our, of our praise group. And I think he developed a, uh, a desire to serve and to minister. And right now, he is co-pastoring in a church, and he's studying in a seminary. And his, will, his vision at this point is to be a pastor. We also have two people that are involved in, who are ministry leaders. One of them is uh, Carol Posner, who will be outside at lunchtime. She and her husband, Joel, have uh, started Friends of Peru, which is uh, a ministry designed to work with 
uh, a home for children of, uh, and women whose husbands are working away in different cities up in the town of Andawailas, which is a very poor mountain village. Um, and there's more information about that uh, between the services, and that's also tomorrow night, because the short-term team that we are, will have coming down with us is to actually go work up in this mountain town of Andawailas. And for those of you who want an exciting experience, uh, experience of going back in time a little bit um, and serving God in a really exciting opportunity, that would be a great one to consider. Um, the other red dot that's in Germany is Carlos Roncal, who was the first musician involved in La Vina. He and his wife are in Germany working with an international student ministry um, in Heidelberg. Um, also in Peru, I think we have miraculously, again, not by any design that we can say, man, this is our leadership plan. But in fact, we have in Peru right now five people who are in seminary, five people from Lavinia who are in seminary. Some are in their uh, first year, some in their second year, and some are about ready to graduate. In addition to the five seminaries, we have uh, two people who are now pastoring. One is Cesar Ferreira, pastor of Lavinia. Another one is uh, Lucho Cornejo, who's co-pastoring in the biggest free church in, in Lima. We also have uh, one regional director of an international ministry. That's Rino Beretta. If you remember Rino Beretta, who worked with Epic Ministries here, he now is uh, the Latin America area director for Proclaim International. Um, he travels with them a lot to Germany and other places, and he's responsible for helping Proclaim develop their Latin American area ministry. Um, and we have then three missionaries, three missionary staff who are working with the Peruvian branch of Word Made Flesh. Word Made Flesh is a mission uh, targeting uh, street children, uh, the poorest of the poor, the weakest of the weak in different countries in the world. In Lima, Peru, that would be the street children. So we have a very strong street children ministry. Then the, um, the branch that was started in Peru called Palabra Hecho Hombre. Um, we have three people that are on full-time staff working with them. One of them is uh, the director of their drop-in center where the kids can come in, take classes, wash up, clean their clothes, get a solid meal, get counseling, and do Bible study. And two other people actually work with the kids in the street, helping get documents, visiting them in the hospital, visiting them in prisons and things like that. And so we're quite excited when we actually look at it. And again, I have to be really honest with you, sometimes we can't figure out how it is that it happens but it just seems to happen, and there they are um, serving. We also then have several projects. The one I just want to put up on the board right now is the one in Andahuaylas again. There's a red dot there in the mountains. It's there on the way to Cusco. One other aspect of our ministry then is tent making. Both Denny and I work as uh, full-time secular jobs. We made that decision a number of years ago because we felt that it was, we wanted to see a strong lay movement in the church. We wanted to have people, um, in our first years there we had people a lot of times saying, they were eager to take the introductory basic Christian truth classes. And you get done with the basic Christian truths, and they would say, okay, now I want to teach you how to teach the Bible to other people. And they say, but I'm a lawyer, I'm an economist, uh, I don't see myself being a pastor. And I'd always say to them, yeah, but I'm a biologist too. But I was working as a full-time missionary, and they, saw, they heard me saying biologist, but they really it translated into their mind pastor. And I kept telling them, I'm a biologist, I'm a biologist. And finally I thought, you know, what I've got to do is this. If I go and I'm teaching, if I'm working as a, in a secular job, then maybe I don't have to say it all the time. And so I um, took a job teaching biology at a British Peruvian school. Uh, Denny teaches at a British Peruvian school as well. And that, as far as we're concerned, has been fantastic for a number of things. One is, 
we have not had to say to people since then, I'm a biologist. It's obvious. We're teaching full-time. The other thing that I love, and I think, you know, if you're ever considering missions, consider tent-making missions, and I'll tell you why, from a selfish reason. One of the things that missionaries often struggle with is a feeling of floating, of not belonging to the culture. Get a job, work with the people, and guess what? You feel like you belong. And other people look at you like you belong as well. Selfishly, it's a, it's a delightful thing. And we have so many close friends who are Peruvian. Um, we even sometimes contemplate retiring in Peru. The only problem would be you know, where our grandchildren will be. We don't have any grandchildren yet, but you know, we anticipate someday that will happen. Um, uh, but anyways, Denny right now, she's, uh, she teaches at Markham, which is the oldest British Peruvian school in Lima. It's kind of the most prestigious one. And she's now in charge of the, uh, um, uh, the preschool program. Uh, and she's had a real thrill this year. For a long time, she's been praying that she could st- start a Bible study with the teachers. Um, backing up before that, you should know that the, many of the Peruvians at the school look at her as their Protestant nun. They say, you know, it's just like you know, having Denny as a teacher is just like having a nun for your teacher, only she's nicer. <laughs> and uh, and it, Denny's got a lot of uh, Protestant Catholic jokes, which the people feel free to tell her because they feel like she's such an understanding Protestant. But uh, she can tell you them later on. I won't tell them up here from the pulpit because I feel John Barter's hand pressing on my back. Um, there's a picture up there as well, I think, of Denny and her kids. Um, See if we can click on. Yeah, maybe not. Um, I also then am, am teaching at uh, another Peruvian school. I used to teach at the same one that Denny's at. But about six years ago, seven years ago now, I guess. Oh, yeah, that's Denny and uh, some of her, her little kids. Um, I would say that I would like to say that they're being charismatic. They're raising their hand, praising the Lord, but they're not. It's actually just a school thing. But still, you get the idea that she's their, their Protestant nun. I'm teaching at another school. They called me about six or seven years ago, and they said, um, we're looking for a director of our jungle center and a person to be the head of science. Are you interested? And I heard jungle center, and I said yes. And so I went to this other school that's um, also British Peruvian school. And so my position now at this school is I'm the uh, director of studies, and I'm also the director of the Jungle Lodge, which means I get to go out to the jungle six or seven times a year, which is absolutely a delight. Um, I'm not sure how I'm serving the Lord going to the jungle, but he sort of gives me a lot of opportunities to praise him. And, and even several years back, when uh, I, w- I catch um, caimans, which are the, the crocodile that lives in the river a lot, so we can show the kids. And some of you know that several years back, I was catching one that was a little bit too big, and it... Um, it kind of got out of my hands and, and bit me and opened up the back of my hand. It was fairly impressive, very exciting for the kids. Um, the, the thing that made it kind of all a great jungle experience for the kids was the fact that um, as we were going backwards, what are we going to do with a hand? And the boat driver said, I've got a lot of experience sewing up people because he works in Brazil nut plantations. And the assistant cook also had some experience. So they sewed me up in the kitchen, and they did a fantastic job. And I had use of all my fingers. But even that, I remember going back that night in the boat. It was one of these beautiful nights, you know, and there's this cactus that grows in the trees in the rainforest that sends out this sort of perfume. There are stars in the sky. And I was riding back, you know, and I 
was thinking, I wonder if I can get the bleeding stopped. And as I could feel the bleeding slowing down. I was thinking, this is awesome, you know. I'm in this most beautiful situation. I belong to God. There's a smell of this perfume in the air. There's stars in the sky. And now I know what it feels like to be bit by a crocodile. And so even that was like a, a, a reason for praise. So anyway, that, that's um, a little bit about you know, our, our background in the, the tent-making job. Now, I'm done with the Waisetta, um, uh, the mission update. The second thing I'd like to say is this. One of the things that's been such a thrill about being on the mission field are all the lessons that God has taught us. He has taught us so many things. And it's not that we're good learners. Denny and I are slow in learning spiritually. You know, God has to beat us over the head. But we have seen so many awesome things where God has just demonstrated his power to change things, to heal things, to make things right. And especially in the area of marriages, um, just absolutely disastrous marriages, you know, coming into the church, that God has not only fixed up, patched up, but he's actually made like they're new. You know, people happily, romantically in love together. Also working with people that you think, you know, six, seven years, you think, this person is going no place. And then Sundays, they just turn around. And then the other day I was saying, you know what? God has really taught us one lesson, and that's like you never give up. And so that's the title of the message that I'd like to share with you today. One of the, perhaps the biggest lesson that we've learned is that with God you never give up. I think there's three problems that we often face in life. There's situations that are hopeless. We just think, there's no way that this could ever get better. And we even think that God couldn't make it better. There are people that we think are hopeless. You know, this person will never change. I know this person for ten years. He's never changed. When will she change or he change? Hopeless relationships. Not just marriages, but friendships, family relationships that you think can't change. Well, I'd like for us to read this morning passage from Joshua, and I discovered after sending in the outline for the sermon that you guys have been doing Joshua as well. So I hope that this isn't sensory overload. And when I read this passage in Joshua, I'm reminded, you know, of Winston Churchill's um, you know, famous speech. Now, for those of you who really know it, you realize that he didn't say never give up. He said never give in. But never give in in American English sounds like you're just being stubborn. Whereas the context, he was really saying never give up. So whenever I read this, this passage of Joshua, I always think of uh, Churchill saying, you know, never give up, never give up. Never, 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 never give up. And I think that's what God is often telling us. Not to be stubborn, but with him, there's no reason to give up. Joshua chapter 1, verse 7 through 9. And in your pew Bibles, that's page 208. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. There's three things I want to just 
look at here in, in, this, in this passage. First of all, there's a command. It's not the only command, but there's a command that's repeated. Be strong and courageous. He says, be strong and courageous in verse 7. He says, be strong and courageous in verse 9. There's also a command that comes with a condition. I like to focus on the condition. And that's where he says, be careful to obey all the law so that you may be prosperous wherever you go. Then he says, meditate on it. Again, say, you can be very, very careful to do everything in it so that you'll be successful in whatever you do. So there's this condition about obeying not just part of the law, but all the law, so that you'll be successful. And then there's a promise when God says that he'll be with them wherever they go. Now, what I want to do is I want to tell you three stories, and I'm going to have to eventually speed up. See, if I start talking in a really high voice very rapidly, that's because I've just turned up the tape to to get into three stories. Um, There are three stories that I want to tell you that I think are part of the, well, the reason why we are so confident about not giving up that God has shown us. And I think they illustrate different aspects of these points. But before I tell you the story, I want to point out what's the problem with giving up? We often think, so what if I give up? I think giving up is one of the most deadly things that, that happen to us. And there's three reasons. Every time we give up, the source of our fears, whether they're inside of us or whether it's Satan's attack, wins. Every time we give up, we've just confirmed that our fear was reasonable, even though it might not have been. Second, every time we give up, the cause of our discouragement, the impediment, the obstacle that we're facing, grows. It wins. And we think, you know what, I can't get over it. And thirdly, every time we give up, our perception of God, of his power, his faithfulness diminishes. Because every time we give up, it's like we're not sitting around to do it. It's just like, for instance, you imagine a kid who, who's waiting for his parents to pick him up at school. His father says, I'm going to be there at 3 o'clock to pick you up. And the child's looking at his watch. It's 2.30. His father's not there yet. 2.45. His father's not there yet. Now, his father said he'd be there at 3 o'clock, but the little kid's thinking, well, he's surely going to be there ahead of time to reassure me that I'm coming. At 2.55, the little kid thinks, my dad's not coming. He hasn't shown up yet. And the little kid gets up and leaves. Now, his father shows up at the time that he says, but what's the little kid's experience of his father showing up? Just as if he hadn't shown up. The little kid's elsewhere and the kid thinks, dad didn't show up. Because he didn't wait for his father to come. When I was trying to teach my little son Peter how to swim, he used to be afraid of water. And I'd say, trust me, just sit back and float and put your hands still, and you can see that you can float. And what would he do? He'd grab onto me. And did that increase his confidence of the water? No. Did it give him confidence in my word? No. Because why did he think he was not drowning? Because he was holding onto me so tightly. And when it could finally convince him to let go of me, did he just lie there? No, he'd go... And what did he think he was floating? He was floating because he was moving his hands so well in the water. Did he have confidence in me? No. Did he believe he could float? No. It's the same thing with God. Now, I've got three reasons for not give, never giving up. The first one, I'm going to start with the, the last thing I said, is God's promise. That he'll be with us wherever we go. The first reason for not giving up 
is the relationship that we have with God. And why is that? It's because if we have a relationship with God and nothing else, we've got success. You can't possibly fail if you've got a relationship with God. Why not? Because if you've got a relationship with God, no matter what kind of disaster you make of your life, what will happen in the end? God created the universe, the most wonderful, awesome thing that we have ever seen, imagined, felt, will be there with his arms wide open to embrace you. And God will take you and he'll say, I love you. He might not be saying, well done, good and faithful servant. But you know, I as a kid remember many times when I was feeling pretty sad. My father didn't say, well done, Dave. He'd just take me in his arms and he'd hold me. And how did I feel? Pretty good. Now, if that's that way with a human father and it's that way with God, I believe that's a pretty awesome thing. There are two reasons, I think, why a relationship with God and nothing else is a success. Because, first of all, if you have a relationship with God and you don't have anything else, you've still got success. And the second one is that if you have everything, but you don't have a relationship with God, you don't have success. Because in the end, you lose it all. In the end, the Bible says it's God who gives us the ability to enjoy what we have. You can have everything. If you don't have God giving you the ability to enjoy it, it's like it's nothing. You doubt that? Look around you. Look in your own life. Think how often you have what you thought you needed to have for happiness and you didn't have it. Second, about with respect to God's promise, it's on the next slide. A relationship with God never results in nothing else. I realize that's not great English. But in other words, even if we had nothing else and we had a relationship with God, we'd have success. But the other thing is this. If you have a relationship with God, it never results in nothing else. God always does things. He changes the way we think, the way we feel, the way we act. He changes circumstances around us. He changes circumstances for us. And I'd like to tell you real briefly then a story that to me was one of the overwhelming ones about how it's just this relationship alone that changes God. About ten years ago, a woman in one of our small group Bible studies said to me, Dave, I told a friend of mine that she should take her daughter to you for counseling. It wasn't a woman from our church. And I said, oh, I said, well, why is that? She said, well, this daughter is tortured by a number of sins in her life and a very difficult past. And she has tried to kill herself many times. And right now, when she goes to sleep at night, she sleeps between her father and her mother because she's afraid that if she's alone, she'll try to kill herself. And what she's done... Her parents have taken her from church to church to church and different psychologists and counselors and all of them have met with her and the counselors counsel her and the pastors pray with her and for a while she's okay and then she falls back into this depression again. So I told her she should talk with you. And I'm thinking to myself, I remember John, John MacArthur years ago being in trouble because he counseled and somebody committed suicide afterwards. I think, God, what am I going to do? You know, I'm not even a licensed counselor. And she had already told, told this woman to come. So I was praying a lot before this, this happened. And I said, God, what should I say to her? What, what scripture, scriptural principles should I point out? And the only thing I felt God saying to me, and this was almost like an audible voice, was, whatever you do, don't pray with her. Have her pray for herself. And I had nothing else to say. And I thought, okay. So I went in with that one thing that I was going to do. And the woman, the woman came with her mother. And just as real briefly, what her background was is this. 
Her parents both worked, and from the time that she was about four or five years old, an uncle and aunt took care of her during the day while her parents worked. Her uncle is an important person in one of the big churches in Peru, and her uncle abused her sexually from the time she was about five years old to the time she was 11. When she was 11, she told her parents what was happening, and her parents, of course, didn't believe her because her uncle was a, a prominent and good man. Of course, it was very traumatic for her. Eventually, when the family kind of half believed it, by that time, it was the damage had really been done to her. You know, she felt betrayed by her parents, misunderstood by her parents. Her parents couldn't understand what was going on. And she was in big problems. In the church where she was going, a youth group leader, who's a woman, is a fairly aggressive lesbian, has affected a number of young women in, in, in Lima, Peru, and picked up on her. And this girl, since that time, had, or she's a young woman, had had repeated random encounters with women. And it'd just be like walking down the street, and she'd bump into somebody somehow or other, and um, would have a relationship with them. But it would be like, you know, multiple times a day, and she hated it. She felt guilty. She felt like totally out of control. And that's why she had tried killing herself. And when she would go and pray with different churches, she would feel like, okay, I'm okay now for a while. But when she came in, the mother said, we want you to pray with, I want you to pray with my daughter. And I said, well, the one thing I'm not going to do is I'm going to pray with your daughter. And she said, well, what kind of missionary are you? And I explained what the free church was and all that. But I said, what, I, your daughter needs to pray for herself. Well, the daughter understood all about Christ. I even think, believe she had a relationship with God, but she didn't feel it. And so I talked with her about forgiveness. I talked with her about how every one of us needs forgiveness in the same degree. That I could no more enter heaven without God's forgiveness than she could. That she was no less pure than I was, because the only purity that we have comes from God. Taught for a long time. But eventually she understood, seemingly, and I asked her to pray. And I just asked her to pray, Lord, you know, I understand that you forgive me. I believe in you. Forgive my sins and thank you for forgiving my sins. Well, she prayed and kind of reluctantly. Um, she was like, oh. And I thought, total failure. You know, I just thought, and as the mother's going out, she asked me one more time. What, what denomination are you with? What kind of missionary are you? And so I went home that night thinking, God, I was faithful to you, I think, but I pray for her. The next morning I got a call from the friend who had recommended her to me. And she had gone home that night and tried praying again. And felt like all of a sudden her eyes were opening to what God was willing to do for her. She went into her parents' bedroom about four in the morning to wake them up. Because she, I, I, I skipped that part. She went to sleep in her own bed that night when she went back. So that was one success. But while she was there, she was praying. Woke her parents up and said, Mom, Dad, I'm praying. And you know what? God loves me. And she started singing songs and things like that. She went and woke up her brothers and sisters. And she's not in Lavinia. She's in another church. I don't even know what's happened over the last couple of years because the woman who recommended her to me is, I think, in the first stages of um, Alzheimer's. And I think, uh, you know, you know, whatever happened to her? And she says, oh, yeah. And she can't remember. But for several years afterwards, it wasn't like her life went absolutely perfect. But she's had dips, you know, where she stumbled. 
but all the time she knew that God was forgiving her. So she hasn't been back to that suicidal, I need to find somebody to pray for me. And she's solid and she's happy. What changed her? Was it great counseling? Was it anything like that? It was a relationship with God. Knowing that God loves her and forgives her. Another reason not to give up. Second reason not to give up is God's condition. The fact that if we obey God's law, he says that we'll be successful, that things will go well for us, that we'll prosper. Now, example I want to give you is this, of a um, couple who just recently were baptized this December, uh, Ugo and Nina. Ugo um, has abused drugs and alcohol for the last 17 years, 17 or 18 years. That's about how long they've been married. And along with, and what I'm telling you, and I'm using his name because he has said this in front of the congregation as well. So it's not, I'm not misusing his name or divulging something here that I wouldn't do there. He's talked about this in front of the congregation. But along with the alcohol and drug abuse, you can imagine that he's abused almost everything else. He's broken his, uh, his promise in, in marriage. And Nina um, is known within her family as the acid-tongued woman. And so between the two of them, they did not have a happy marriage. She would drive him nuts, and he'd go off, and he'd uh, use drugs. And there are some places in Peru where you get the drugs, and you get a number of other things as well. So he had disappeared to one of these houses over the weekend, or however long he disappeared. Total disaster. You think, you know... 17 years of a person trying to change his life on his own, 17 years of violating his marriage vows, 17 years of disappointing his children, that should be a totally dysfunctional family without any hope. As late as May of this year, we had, Denny and I had started meeting with them last, uh, the year before last. But as recently as May of this year, one more time where there was this collapse. And so there had been this attempt over about six months to get things better, and then, you know, bang, they have a disagreement about something, and the next thing you know, he was off in the house of ill repute and you know, using money on, to buy the drugs or whatever and whatever else. And she was there just, you know, ripping him up and down to the kids as well. That should be a family that has scars that take forever to heal, right? But starting in May, Google said, this is it. You know, I... I can't go any lower than this. And they began putting into practice, among other things, starting from the very beginning, that divorce wasn't an option. She wasn't going to divorce him. They weren't going to divorce each other. What does the Bible say about how you treat each other? What's the husband's role in marriage? What's the wife's role in marriage? What do you do with respect to drunkenness? Is drunkenness permitted? No, it isn't. And just step by step, taking baby steps, trying to obey everything as it came up that God asked them to do. And you know what they saw in their marriage? Transformation. In December at our annual retreat, when they were baptized, Ugo had already apologized to his wife and his children and stuff like that. And, and as a family, they're like, you know, it was already evident to the church that they're one miraculously happy family. The kids should be scarred like mad, and the kids are just a delight. But in front of the whole congregation at the baptism, Ugo shares his testimony. And he apologizes personally to his wife and to each of his children in front of the whole congregation. Well, you can imagine how the kids were. The kids were just like bawling. Not out of sadness, 
out of happiness. His wife, who for so long, the acid-tongued wife who just thought this guy is one step below a worm, just hugging him like man, big smile on her face, just like, you know, like that little yellow face with a huge smile. It's just like that. And, and Ugo is the sort of man that everybody in the church can respect as well. He's a big guy, great big heart, and things like that. And he's sharing this, and he says, what I have to tell you today is this. God's given me back my family, the respect of my wife, which I don't deserve, the respect of my children, and the love of my children, which I don't deserve. And I have to tell you that on this day, today, I am the happiest man on earth. And it's the truth. What changed? It's stuff that should take months and years of counseling. Maybe they could just be at least live more or less happily ever after. But they're happy. And as long as they keep walking in obedience, they'll continue to be happy. One last example. And that's of a man who is now elder in our church. He and his wife, for years, were struggling. She was the leader of our, our praise group and was praying for him. He had ongoing affairs. Even after he became a Christian and said, they're done, she discovered that he was having an affair. Um, and finally, at one point, he just said, you know, she said, I can't take another step. I can't go one day farther in this marriage. And what should I do? And he said, as far as the Bible is concerned, God doesn't seem to contemplate divorce. Understand your pain. But let's go one, one day farther and we're going to pray and talk with your husband. And he eventually repented. I think impressed by the love of his wife. And the thing that happened there is that aspect of um, I just actually I, was, I, I skipped the third point that I was, I was going to use to illustrate it is God's command to be strong and courageous because uh, this is an illustration she had every reason to just be discouraged and like I can't you know he's been in accountability groups and he's failed he's made promises to me and he's failed why should I go one day further and yet they would continue one day further and at this point they are romantically in love with each other they're like the model couple in the church. And they're counseling other couples now in the same situation. People hear about their story and they say, can we come and talk to you? He's an elder in the church now. And, uh, you know, when people think, who's, who's the person who I can go to, a wise man for advice, they go to him. So in conclusion, there's three reasons not to give up. We have God's promise that God is with us. We have the condition that if we obey, we'll be successful. We have God's command to be strong and courageous. The benefits of never giving up is that evil loses, God wins. Our faith in God grows, and our love for God grows. When we give up, each of those things is cut short. It's been an awesome thing watching that happen. And I know that each one of us have got areas in our life where we as well have been giving up and we could change that. And we could say, God, I don't want to give up on you. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for being the awesome God that you are, for your forgiveness, for your love, for your commands. Thank you as well that the reason we have to be courageous, to not be discouraged, is because you're with us. You change all things. You make all things new. In Jesus' name.
We ask this and we thank you. Amen.